This is Global Beacon with General Wesley K. Clark. Well, I want to welcome John White, MD, Chief Medical Officer of WebMD. John was a director with the Food and Drug Administration, and he was the chief medical expert at Discovery Channel. I had the pleasure recently of appearing on John's show. The title was Coronavirus in Context, and John has graciously agreed to speak to our audience here. Welcome, John. Thank you, General Clark. I love your show, and I'm an avid user of WebMD. My wife and I go to it every time there's a cut or a bruise or an ache or a pain or any other issue. And um, I hope for our members of our audience who've not seen it, maybe you can give us an idea of what to expect when they watch. Yeah, you know, it's great to be with you. And I guess the tables are turned today. So we had a great conversation and really about, you know, how can we use the, the role of the military we talked about in you know, logistics and distribution. And, and here we had a great program in therapeutics and innovation. But then in terms of the delivery, what went wrong? And you gave us some good advice as to how to fix it. And what I found really interesting, General Clark, is our discussion around the role of the United States on the world stage and how we, again, become a leader and lead the world. So it's, it's really been interesting. And I thought of you the other day, because remember, we talked about this concept of vaccine nationalism, right? How right. we're not safe until we're all safe. And there's national security implications of this. So we had a really good dialogue. So I encourage folks to, to check it out. You can Google coronavirus in context on WebMD and it'll come right up. Well, thanks, John. But let's, uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we talked. Give us your latest update. How's the Biden administration doing and are we getting a better grip on the issue? You know, we have some encouraging news. The number of new cases is down dramatically. The number of hospitalizations are down as well, number of cases. I'm just a little bit concerned that we plateau too high. So, you know, we're at about 100,000 cases a day and we're kind of happy with that because it used to be a 200,000, but it really needs to be much less, we need to be driving that down towards zero. You know, we're still having 2,500 deaths a day, better than the 4,000 we were having, but I'd like to see that dramatically lower. We're getting greater distribution of the vaccine, and I feel like we now have a plan. Let's be honest, you and I talked about it. There was no plan for, for distribution, great plan for development. But I am concerned about the variants. And if we don't vaccinate people quickly enough, are the vaccines gonna be effective enough against the variant? So some encouraging news, General Clark, uh, hope, we're all hopeful, but we, we need to keep our foot on the pedal and keep moving forward. So you and your family are following the, the CDC guidelines of the double masking now? You know, I'm fully vaccinated as a, as a healthcare provider, but I am because it's a barrier. And the, the more barriers we have, the better. So, you know, I've been telling people if you have that surgical mask, it's happened happen here with me. We didn't even plan this. You know, you put the best one on first. I have to tell people, I'm not joking. I've seen people been wearing these inside out. You wear the light side towards your face, right? And the metal piece up on the top, you put it on top of your nose. I could actually do it. And then you grab your cloth mask and you put that on top of that. 
make sure you can breathe. I tell people don't overdo it. You tell people two, some people will want to do four. Um, double masking is, is a good idea right now. And, and also wearing the one mask right too. I mean, we've all seen it where people have it below their nose when they need to talk. It's hanging off of one ear. Let's wear one mask correctly and wear it. I love to these basketball coaches with the masks on. And when the game gets really heated, boy, that mask comes off and they're shouting across the court. And that's the worst time because that's what they're expelling potentially, you know, harmful particles. So John, what's your what's your recommendation on a travel? If you've been vaccinated, are we safe to travel? And uh are we still potentially infectious if we've been vaccinated? Do we have to be careful around others? So a, a couple things, and you know, I'll be honest, I don't expect international travel to occur before late fall. And there's lots of reasons why that is. It's not just about vaccination in our country, but about vaccination in other countries. And as you know, a lot of the borders are, are closed, even as we think about Canada and Mexico. But remember, currently right now, it's still a two shot vaccine regimen. Johnson and Johnson is a one shot and they're going to be reviewed at the end of February. So we'll see what happens there. But after the first dose, you probably only have about 50, 60% protection. And then three to four weeks later, you get that second dose to get that 94, 95% protection. And you develop that typically a week or two after the second dose. What we don't know, does it present prevent asymptomatic infection. So we know it prevents symptomatic, moderate to severe cases, hospitalizations, but could you still get coronavirus carried in your nasal cavities? You'll be fine, but you could potentially infect others. The risk is low, but not zero. So th there is a risk. That's why we still wear the mask. I'm wearing the mask after vaccination, still physically distanced. Uh, and avoid large gatherings. You know, as for travel, you know, General Clark, it's always about risk. I, I'm sure you did that in the military. How do you weigh potential benefits versus potential harms? There's never zero risk. And, and we all have to acknowledge that. I feel like sometimes people feel, you know, that you, you, you can't reopen things until it's zero. Well, it's never going to be zero. The issue of traveling, you know, within the country, we know air travel is pretty safe, partly because of its filtration system. It's coming up down. Very good filters. What I get concerned about is all the aspects of traveling, right? You know, getting to the airport, being around a lot of people that may not be practicing physically distancing and wearing the mask properly, having to use the restrooms, having to use foods, getting to another location. I'd still say now, unless you really have to travel, probably avoid it. I'd Certainly caution people, maybe wait until you're fully vaccinated because that's going to give you a lot of protection. Um, but in terms of international travel, I don't think it's likely soon. And, I, and I'll tell you, I'll be interested in your thoughts. Someone asked me, they're like, well, you know, my kids have a, a milestone birthday this summer. Do you, do you think we could go on safari in Africa? I mean, I can't make this up. And I'm like, really, really? I'm like, I don't think, which year? Not, not this year, right? because there's concern about the variants, et cetera. So mm -hmm. domestic travel, getting better, international travel, it's gonna be a bit of time before we see that happening. And, and John, what about our schools? You know, we're worried that our kids aren't getting a good education. I mean, I've talked to so many parents, they yeah. say, 
Zoom is great for you adults, but it's okay for business, yeah. but it's terrible for kids in classrooms. They just don't feel the engagement yeah. with the teachers. What do we have to do to get kids back in the classroom safely? Yeah. You know, I agree. And, and my kids are young and they've been doing Zoom and, it, and it's hard. But the good news is, you know, President Biden has said he wants the schools open in the first hundred days. There, there's some interpretation of what open means. I really do see a trend moving towards getting the schools open, at least in a hybrid role. I see that happening in my county here in Virginia, because I think there's the recognition of a couple things. One is that risking children is low, not zero again, but very low. And transmission amongst kids is actually pretty low, even to adults. And we're recognizing that kids are falling behind, especially those that are, are disadvantaged. They're having mental health issues from social isolation. We've seen increase in suicides uh, among teens. So I think there's really a push now to getting the schools open. And I do think the administration has been giving resources to the school districts to make those changes that they need to have more PPE, to be able to, to physically distance more. So honestly, I expect in the next month or so for more and more schools to at least be opening in a hybrid role around the country. Good, well, that's, that's welcome news, I know. You know, I've been talking to some of my friends in, in, in hospitals and, um, and they've been telling me that in the hospitals, they, they do have things called air scrubbers. Mm -hmm. um, they may be filters, they may be something else, but they're trying to do something because we know this infection, despite what they told us early on about getting our hands washed and so forth. That's good if you're a surgeon or you're a nurse or something, you're working around sick patients. But for most of us, it's about, you know, the air between us when we talk. And I wonder, you know, is there not something we can do in our schools to, to do better job with disinfecting the air? You know, we're trying to do that. At a minimum, we are talking about you know, let's improve the HEPA filters in the school, the you know, air filtration systems. Let's open the windows more. Let's have more outdoor activities. That can be very hard to do and realistic in some areas of the country during the winter. But you're right to think of, you know, effective strategies and really, you know, what's the proper sanitation, recognizing this is an airborne pathogen. Look, you couldn't come on my show without by asking you at least one dirty question, okay? So, so here it is. You know, in the medical profession, just like in the military, mm -hmm. we're taught somebody's wounded. You have to do triage. Yeah. You have to, you know, separate. There are some who will recover without mm -hmm. any problem at all. Uh, there's some who, no matter what you do on the battlefield, they're not going to make it to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And then there's that middle category that got to give them first aid right away. You got to yeah. stop the bleeding. It's that critical first 60 seconds, and then, mm -hmm. then they've got a chance to survive. It's triage. And I know mm -hmm. the medical profession teaches the same, too. But I wonder, in this case, you know, you look at the um, very famous people who have been infected with COVID, like mm -hmm. our former president, Donald Trump, and mm -hmm. um, his lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, and others. It seemed like as soon as they got infected, boom, they were in the hospital, and somebody mm -hmm. gave them some kind of a magic treatment, and boy, they came out, and they felt great. And yet here in our state of Arkansas, we lost 42 more people yeah. yesterday, just in Arkansas. And we're, we're up in, the, in 460,000 in the United States. Is it possible that there are effective 
treatments or antibody treatments or other things that they're being given too late to people when they first get sick, they go to the hospital and say, I'm sick. And the doctor says, well, you know, we've got a world full of people who are about to die here. Why don't you go home and, um, and we'll come back in if, if yeah. you can't breathe. Uh, yeah. But in the meantime, take some ibuprofen. And then when they come back in, say, now I have to go in the ICU. Yeah. Say, uh, we're going to give everything we got, but it's too late. Is that mm -hmm. happening in our hospitals? It is happening. We've waited too long for many patients. You mentioned the former president, um, Mr. Giuliani, as well as Mr. Christie. They all received monoclonal antibodies, polyclonal antibodies. You mentioned that. They received some other things as well. But what we do know is that for patients with moderate to severe disease, people that are you know, not doing well, and early on, like the former president, like Mr. Giuliani, that don't require hospitalization, given monoclonal antibodies early on can reduce the amount of virus tremendously. But what we've learned, General Clark, is that you know, the, the federal government has bought millions of dollars worth of monoclonal antibodies and they're not being used. And this is the same problem that we've had early on in the vaccine distribution. The federal government bought it and then how are they distributing it? How are they getting it out? It's not clear, you know, I'm a primary care physician. How do you get a patient, you know, on these medications? And what they did at first was they sent it to the same hospitals that were using remdesivir. Well, that doesn't make sense. That's hospitalized patients that are much further along. They're, they're already overtasked. We need to be getting this out to the primary care clinics, to infusion centers, giving people an opportunity. And that's something that we've been talking about lately. You're exactly right. It shouldn't be based on who you know and based on your station, so to speak, in life. Everyone needs to have equal access to potentially life-saving therapies. And, and certainly we need to improve the use of monoclonal antibodies as well as other therapeutics. And, and John, I guess what you're telling those of us who aren't on the inside of the medical profession is, if you ever get this disease, and you don't feel well, and you go to the hospital, and the doctor says, well, you don't look that serious. You say, Doc, stop. Yeah. I want the most treatment you can give me now. Don't take yeah. a risk on me. Give me the monoclonal antibodies, the remdesivir, or whatever mm -hmm. it is. In other words, we want our, our, our yeah. population to fight for treatment, to demand it early, not just to go to see the doctor. The doctor says, well, uh, you know, you're not sick yet. I said, Doctor said, yeah. I'm not sick, I'm going home. You know, General Clark, I always say to patients, listen to your own body. You're an expert in your own body. And sometimes you have to be the squeaky wheel. I was just talking to a friend earlier today who was concerned about a DVT, a blood clot in her leg. And, and she's like, you know, I'm trying to call around for ultrasounds and they're all saying you know, they're not available to mid-March. I'm like, look, you need to get on the line and you need to not get off until they give yep. you an appointment today or tonight. And you got to be a bit assertive Did that today and it has been successful, but it, it's the same point on this. We see it with patients who are convinced they have coronavirus and their doctor doesn't order a test, doesn't think there'll be anything different. And, you know, eventually then, then patients get worse. And, and what I tell patients, as I said, listen to your own body, be a squeaky wheel. Be assertive. If you're not happy with what your doctor said to you, find another doctor. Uh, this is your life and you need to, you know, be aggressive about it sometimes, especially now. The squeaky wheel sometimes does 
get the grease. Whether it's right or wrong, that's part of the reality. Uh, and, and you need to be your own advocate and you need others to be your advocate too. John, I wish every American could hear you say that. And um, you may be saying it on your show. If you aren't, please tell us mm -hmm. that and say it loud and clear. And especially to our members of the minority community yeah. who sometimes they don't get the respect, they don't get the care they need. And, um, and, 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 and let's encourage Americans to, as you say, listen to your own body and speak yeah. out. Absolutely, you know, sometimes patients are too deferential. You know, the doctor said I didn't need it. Well, you know what? Sometimes you have to push. And I loved your line. And you said, give me everything. That, that, that's right. If you don't feel right and something just doesn't make sense, you don't want to lie in bed for three to four days and get worse. You speak up. You have your your advocates speak up. You ask about things. You ask about monoclonal antibodies. You ask about remdesivir and, and you push a little and, and, and you're honest about how you feel. You know, absolutely. We all have to be our own advocate. So, but this brings up my second uh, kind of dirty question. You know, there's a lot of money for vaccine makers mm -hmm. in vaccines. And there's never been that much money for the pharmaceutical industry in producing, let's say, cures. And in particular, in this case, I wonder if we've done enough in terms of systematically looking at already approved pharmaceuticals that might have some bearing on stopping, uh, you know, the congestive buildup in the lungs or right. some other aspect of the disease. Have we really systematically gone after what's out there in the marketplace already FDA approved to say, you know, if we could just stop the killing, we could yeah. deal with headaches and the loss of smell. But when you're losing thousands of people a day, that's a national crisis. I wonder Absolutely. if there's not something more we could be doing. Well, you know, Operation Warp Speed also financed over 130 different agents for therapeutics. We've talked a lot about the vaccines, but there's actually a lot of other agents, including currently approved drugs, um, as treatment. The challenge sometimes with the currently approved drugs, and I say this as someone who worked at FDA and, and physicians are able to use off-label, sometimes then it's hard to get controlled trials and really see what's going on. Yep. And, and you know, there's an opportunity cost. So there's always was a, a drive towards right to try it. And I'll be honest, let's bring up hydroxychloroquine. And, and people will say, well, why not just try it and see what happens? Well, remember, every drug has risk versus benefit. There's also the opportunity cost that if you try this therapy, which actually doesn't work, you might forego a therapy that actually does work, that then yeah. puts you in a worse position. So I'm all for that. But let's also encourage you know, trials. Let's collect information because we don't want to expose people to needless risk. We also want to make sure they're exposed to, to therapies that work. You know, I was asked earlier today, what about probiotics, taking probiotics? And I recently interviewed an expert because we know that the gut actually has a big role for immunity, but you have to do it right, Wes, because if you don't, you can get infections, you can develop, you know, um, an allergic reaction. So we do need to focus a little more on therapeutics, but I'll tell you, there are studies currently going on, but we're still, we've been doing that on HIV medicines. 
and, and a lot of them haven't panned out. You know, we've been doing it when we talk about prednisone and, and steroids addressing cytokine storm. So we are looking at, you know, other agents. We've been doing that on, you know, even as we talked about hydroxychloroquine and some others and, and others, some antivirals too. The sad part is a lot of these things haven't been working the way that we would like. Uh, that's been the real challenge too. Can I, I, you know, you were at FDA, so you've seen the system. You're not just a great doctor and have a great, um, I'm sure, bedside manner, but you also know how the policy system works mm -hmm. and so forth. So let's explore, what have we learned from this pandemic? What's the impact gonna be on American medicine in the future? Yeah. And what should we be expecting our government and our leaders to do based on what's happened to date? Yeah. Here's my biggest concern. I think the public, including the health community, has been frustrated over what has at times been seen to be a politicization mm -hmm. of scientific analysis. You know, the FDA, the CDC are scientific experts, career scientists. That's what they're trained to do. And then we have public officials who are saying something counter, almost like here you have your data, but here's what I think. And they're equivalent. They're not equivalent. <laughs> Unbelievable to me. And yet, but, but it's also, it's also a factor. It's also like this, John, I mean, you know, you can't eliminate risk. And so yeah. there was a real tension between, okay, we're going to keep everybody safe. Yeah. Uh, we're going to stop doing everything in America for the next two years and hope the virus goes away. Yeah. That wasn't going to work. So there had to be some common sense. And then there yeah. was also the issue of a lot of questions science doesn't have an answer to yet. That's right. And so uh, it is a dilemma. But what you're telling me is uh, the medical profession is feeling the frustration of this because it is a science-based profession. There are it's professional been attacked. Yeah. Since when do you have public health officials getting death threats? You know, senior scientist, Dr. Fauci, getting death threats. We can debate the data and data, as you know, isn't always black and white, it's gray, it's subject to interpretation. Well, let's have those discussions. Let's talk about regulatory flexibility and, and you know, using emergency use authorization. But to go out there and to say, without even looking at data, oh, this therapy works, or you know, this is gonna be approved, that doesn't process. And you know, I would ask you with all your work in you know, the, the battlefield, et cetera, you look at data, you don't simply go in a hunch, do you? I mean, there's the role of hunches, but don't you, you know, ask the experts and, and factor that into, and you just don't make yeah. your decision before and you get their analysis and promulgate it. I mean, that's insane what was going on. We had, you know, people challenging the reports of CDC. And then what do we have? We have don't wear a mask, wear a mask, you know, all these other changes. It just makes people frustrated to be like, well, whatever, what do I believe? And I think it's going to take some time to restore confidence in some of our premier scientific agencies, the FDA, the CDC, NIH, as well as some of our premier academic centers. So th that's been one of the most disappointing aspects of the past year. I mean, the good news though, General Clark, I'd say is, we had tremendous innovation. When you think about it, at the beginning, we had no therapeutic interventions. You know, we had a vaccine developed in record time in multiple candidates. Look at where we are on testing. 
you know, they've been iterative and there's been bumps along the way, but we had nothing at the beginning. And over nine months, we've had tremendous innovation. So that's a success story in terms of modern medicine. Right, in terms of the science of it. Mm -hmm. So, but, um, so how do we feel then about, let's say the healthcare system? I, I read where one, one poor man died and his family was stuck with a $4 million hospital bill. I mean, how can this, yeah. what does that say about how we should be dealing with healthcare policy yeah. in America? Well, this is a problem pre-COVID, you know, surprise hospital bills. You know, the reality is if you're uninsured, they charge you the full price of things, whereas all the insurers have negotiated some right. discounted rate. So they don't even give you the discount rate. Right. It's just insane in terms of some of these costs. And we need to have a better system. We need to have a, a much better, you had a great line in our show where you said, John, we need a 21st century public health system. And we don't have it. And yeah, I think we need, we, I think it starts with a public option. I think you have to have a public option. I think you just extend the children's health insurance program up. You bring Medicare down and you let the private insurance company say, hey, hey go ahead. If they'd rather have private insurance, mm -hmm. like guess every country has it. Mm -hmm. And you can certainly, you're certainly welcome to pay for it. But nobody in this country should be going into a into a, a emergency room because they don't, they can't get an appointment with a doctor. But That's right. um, I heard that one of the outcomes of this um, this, this pandemic is going to be a greater reliance on telemedicine in the future. Yeah. And that people are really concerned because it seems like this economy is going to be reduced to three businesses before we're finished. Amazon, Google, and Facebook, and nothing else. And everyone's going to be like, you're going to be owned by these big data centers and, yeah. and they're going to know everything about you. When you're in your bedroom at night, you're turning over, yeah. say goodnight to your wife, Amazon's going to say, don't forget, she's got a cold. Don't kiss her tonight or something like this. I mean, where is it going? And is this a real yeah. threat to our sense of privacy and the doctor-patient relationship that's so central to American medicine? Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, some people are saying we're going to have, you know, like the roaring 20 after, you know, the Spanish flu, where there's going to be a resurgence of travel, that people are going to be ready to go out and, and do things. You know, I, I'm trying to look at it as, you know, where are the silver linings? And, you know, telehealth, telemedicine, I think is a, is a very good development. You know, it was going very slowly, probably 2% of visits were telemedicine prior to COVID. You know, went up to 80%, you know, in March of April last year, probably will balance out at 2030 but the benefit of that is we're literally bringing care to the patient. Why drive, you know, 20, 30 minutes, wait an hour sometimes for a visit, right. you know, then drive 20, 30 minutes back um, for a 10 minute visit and, and really your whole morning or whole afternoon is gone. And we can do a lot of things with telemedicine, a lot of use of remote patient monitoring and really bringing care into the home, even doing clinical trials in the home doing spirometry in the home. So we really have accelerated that technology, but what we don't wanna do is exacerbate disparities between those that are well-insured, those that can have the right equipment and technology. Part of the challenge with the virtual schools is, you know, in some areas, kids have to use a phone. How can you do lessons and learning 
through the phone. I mean, it's just not possible and do it for six hours a day, you know, several days a week. But your point about the issue of privacy is very important. So here is we have all these smart watches everybody has and smartphones. Where's all that data going? Who owns that data? And what is it being used for? I think those are some real issues that, that need to be addressed. And, you know, General Clark, I think part of it is, if you think about it, in the United States, and, and actually in most places around the world, you know, there's the technology where we could do contact tracing by the phone, right? It could use Bluetooth and location trackers to tell us if we came into contact with someone with COVID. There's zero, there's not zero, but almost zero. The percent adoption is in single digits. You know, it doesn't work like that. So, you know, the public is skeptical. You know, here we're trying to do a public health measure to do real contact tracing using technology and nobody wants to sign up for it. Even in Singapore, they only had about 15% adoption. So, so why is that? I think it's the concern about, you know, to your point, these issues of privacy. I think you're right. I mean, there are concerns about privacy. There's also concerns about the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And I'm really worried that something like 30% of the American public or more not want to take the vaccine. So we've right. got some, some major issues. And um, I think you probably agree with me that this is probably not going to be the last pandemic in the 21st century. No, I, I, I think um, it's, it's going to be a real challenge if we don't improve our surveillance. Well, John, this has been a real pleasure to be with you. Um, and thanks very much for being on my show. I think, you know, every American watching this wishes they had you as their family physician. <laughs> You're too kind. You've got the right knowledge. Yeah. You've got the right, the right mannerisms. You give a lot of confidence. And um, that's one thing America needs right now. We need to regain our balance, our confidence in this yeah. country. So thanks for being on this program. And, uh, and let's help the American people believe in ourselves. As I heard some great political leader say the other day, if Americans don't believe in ourselves, no one's going to believe in us. That's right. And we've that's got right. a whole world out there that's looking for American leadership, including in the field of medicine. So, John, you're one of our leaders in medicine, and we thank you very thank much you. for being on with us. This has been Global Beacon with General Wesley Clark. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give us a like and a rating at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 